Hear now the word of the Lord. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substances belong to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in details about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knitted together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If you with Christ, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive to the world, do you submit to regulations? such do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Daniel. Okay, uh, kids, I mentioned your Trinity Kids Bulletin. You might not have been in here for it, but uh, you have one. And there's a spot on there where you can jot down three things that I want you to listen for specifically. One is a a dog on a leash. Um, Secondly, scorekeeping. And then thirdly, the Da Vinci Code. So a dog on a leash, scorekeeping, and the Da Vinci Code. So with that, let uh, let me pray for us as we look to this passage together. Father, we ask now that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts together would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Lord, we give you thanks uh, this afternoon uh, for the gift of your word. We thank you that in its pages you reveal to us your very son, the one in whom we have life and salvation. And Father, he is the one from whom we need to hear this afternoon. So we pray that you would do that by your spirit. We ask it all in his name. Amen. Uh, well, there's a, uh, there's a man that I see on the Trinity Trails pretty regularly, and he, uh, he has two dogs with him all the time. One is an older dog uh, who is regularly on a leash, and the other is a dog that it's, it's some kind of uh, border collie uh, who is never on a leash. And, uh, and here's the thing. Every time I run by this man and his dogs, they move off the trail, and what he does is he points to this border collie and then points to the ground, and this dog does this like cowering thing, like tucks its tail, and then turns around a few times and goes right to the ground and doesn't do anything else. And so this guy is, and he's intense when he does it too. So like when I come by, I'll say hi, and lots of times he'll just say hi and not look at me because he's looking at his border collie, don't get up, you know? Um, And so what's so interesting about this um, is that one, I, th- this dog it honestly looks a little terrified, um, but, uh, but it, what's interesting is, is that it's almost like this dog is behaving as though it still has this leash and collar on, and yet it's totally free. Now, contrast that with our dog Tilly, okay? If you take her off her leash, which you should never ever do, she will bolt, and any attempt to catch her is understood by her to be a game that you are obviously playing with her. That that's what this is all about. And so she very clearly knows that when you take that leash off, she is free, right? Here's the problem with that, though. She doesn't know how to live in that freedom very wisely. 
Because there are ways in which she could really, really hurt herself if she got off in the wrong place and ran into traffic, right? And so here's the point. Enjoying real freedom is actually a lot harder than it seems. There can be this temptation on the one hand to live like you've never been set free because that seems more familiar. In some ways, it seems more comfortable at times. But then the opposite extreme then is to live recklessly in that freedom in a way that's not good for you, in a way that's actually dangerous. And I mention that because part of what Paul is dealing with in the letter to the Colossians is that difficulty. It's the difficulty that we all have of living in and, and really enjoying the freedom that we have in Jesus. And so you might remember that, that, that he's in this section of the letter where he's actually directly confronting the false teaching that, that, that's sort of in the water in Colossae at this point. And it was this teaching that, that overall, I mean, the, the, the particulars are, are sometimes hard to determine, but the big question here was whether faith in Jesus alone was sufficient or whether certain Jewish or these kind of mystical practices needed to be added to Jesus in addition to him in order to experience real life with God. And so what Paul is saying here is that you, Colossians, you, church, are gonna face this temptation at some point. Maybe it's happening right now. Maybe it's just gonna happen at some point. He's preparing them. But you're gonna face a temptation to return to a certain set of practices, And some of these practices are actually the practices from the Old Testament. They're practices of Judaism, and they were good in a certain context. They weren't bad at all before Christ came. But they have now passed away because Jesus has come. And here's what he wants us to warn us about. If you do these practices now that were good at one time but aren't now, then you are actually giving up the freedom that you have in Jesus. You are behaving as though you have never been set free. Now, again, this is one of those spots specifically in this passage where we don't feel this in the areas of dietary laws, right? Or new moon festivals, for example, or going on in visions puffed up in all these ways, right? Or these ascetical practices. That's not how we feel this. but, but, But we do have this impulse that's in common with this heresy, this false teaching. And it's to view who we are by what we do, to live our lives from the perspective that my identity is based exclusively in what I do and how I perform. And one of the places to look to to, to see that this is actually true is is in our love of scorekeeping. So kids, I want you to think about this. Have you ever been in a situation where you're on some sports team and you're scrimmaging against another team so it's not a real game, right? And because it's not a real game, the coaches won't keep track of the score. And you're really bothered by that. Is that maybe just me that that happens to, right? You know that feeling, right? You're still keeping track of score. Or, grown-ups, how many times have you played a pickup game of basketball or shot around a golf and not kept score? Or maybe gone for a run or a ride and not worn your Garmin watch and uploaded it to Strava, right? Doesn't happen. Now, or maybe to take it out of the realm of, of sports here, maybe when have you ever posted something on social media and not returned to it just to see how many likes that you've received? That, that, that underlying current of scorekeeping is at work in our hearts and in our lives. And here's the thing about that. What Paul says is that when we do that sort of thing, we, like the Colossians, are actually in danger of falling captive to something from which we've already been set free. 
And so what Paul does is he wants to remind both the Colossians and us that you are already free in Christ. And because that's true, don't fall into the trap of giving yourself to anything else that would compromise that freedom. And it's really easy to do, and that's why he's writing this to us. And so what I want to do this afternoon is to, uh, to frame our time by looking at, at three specific reasons that they and, and we are free in Christ. Three ways that we're free in Christ. So here's the first. You're free in Christ first because he, that is Jesus, is the true substance. He's the true substance. So this is the place uh, in this letter where Paul finally gives some specifics. Um, he, he's been very general to this point as to what this false teaching is. Here's what he says, though, verse 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Okay, so what, what were these teachers saying? Well, they're, they're saying that belief in Jesus is good. They might have even been saying that it's essential. But if you really want to take your life with God seriously, if you really want to experience the fullness of life with him, then what you need to do is you need to also abide by these certain dietary laws. You need to abide by these certain laws that say things about the annual festivals, the monthly new moon festivals, and the weekly Sabbath. And here's the thing about these, uh, about these laws. Uh, there were, in other religions outside of Judaism at the time, practices of uh, rules about food and drink. There were uh, practices about new moon festivals, but there were not practices uh, about keeping Sabbath. And so taken together, these are all pointing to some temptation to return to these Old Testament commandments. And in terms of the Old Covenant, before Jesus came, these were great things. They were really important practices. Now, they, they were never a way for God's people to try to earn their favor before God. That was never the way the law was set up. God, by his grace, had set his love upon the people of Israel. And in response to his love, to live in this relationship of grace with him, they were to keep these practices and obey his law. So here's the question then. So if the law was a good thing, and it was and it is, then what's the problem here? Well, the problem is that these false teachers are still now on this side of Jesus insisting that, on that kind of obedience after Jesus had come. And, and, and when they did that, they showed that they didn't understand the relationship between the law and the coming of Jesus. So here's what Paul says, verse 17. He tells us this relationship. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. In other words, all of these laws ultimately pointed to Jesus. They were a shadow. Jesus himself is the substance. And here's the deal then. And so to, to try to add those practices to uh, what Jesus has already done after he has fulfilled them is to fall into what some have called a form of legalism. So what is legalism? Legalism is most basically this belief that your relationship with the Lord is based on what you do. It's an attempt to, in, in some respect, accrue merit, build up some sense of righteousness or worth or value on your own before the Lord. And, and what's at least implied in legalism all the time is that Jesus is not enough. Something more is required. You need something more than just Jesus. And, and, and the legalism of this passage with these false teachers is pretty obvious, right? I mean, they are literally 
uh, d- demanding obedience to the law. And, and this is where it's so tempting to think, like, well, yeah, like what are they thinking, right? This is blatant legalism and, and, and something that, that, that's so obvious that it's hard to imagine ever even falling into it. And then the problem with that, though, is that we assume, because we don't have anything maybe that's that blatantly obvious, that then legalism isn't a real problem for us. Here's the deal. Legalism is a problem for us. It just shows up in ways that are much more subtle. And so I I just want to suggest one way that might expose in your own life a place where you might have some gravitation towards legalism. And it comes from David Zoll's book, uh, Seculosity. Uh, He recommends this. Look to the places in your life where you feel exhausted. Look to the places in your life where you are so tired and you feel so tired from holding it together, from this constant sense of having to perform, from this constant sense of having to achieve some kind of standard. Here's how he puts it. He says, wherever you are most tired, look closely and you'll likely find self-justification at work the drive to validate your existence, to assert your lovability via adherence to some standard of enoughness, be it behavioral or conceptual, given or invented. And a couple of qualifications here. He's not talking here about the kind of exhaustion and fatigue that every parent has with three kids under the age of four, right? And this is important too. He's not talking either about the kind of um, the fatigue and the exhaustion that comes with grief and suffering. Because that kind of fatigue and, and, and exhaustion is real as well. That's not what we're talking about here. What he's talking about are the places where you feel exhausted because you have tied your worth and your value to achieving something. And the way that it begins to manifest itself is in this fatigue. So it could be in your work. It could be in your grades at school. It could be in your resume and the college that you are dying to get into and so you are working yourself to the bone to try to make it happen. It could be in your social circles that you want so badly to achieve some sort of nebulous goal, some way in which people will look to you as the one and you're so tired because of it. It could be in your parenting because you either want to have it all together as a parent or you at least don't want to be the parent that doesn't have it all together. And you're exhausted because of it. And Paul's response is to say, you don't have to live that way anymore. You don't have to do that. Because in Christ right now, you are already free from that treadmill. You are absolutely free in him. You've been set free from that exhausting, never-ending attempt to justify your existence. How? Because you have been set free by Christ, who is the true substance. You don't need anything else. So that's the first reason that, that, that we're free in Christ. It's because Christ himself is the true substance. Secondly, you are free in Christ because he is the true source. Because he's the true source. Verse 18, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. Okay, this is a harder list to pinpoint here. So some think that these false teachers were insisting on, on, on some kind of mystical experience. That sort of sounds like what's being described. 
And the reason would have been that, that you need to have this kind of mystical experience in order to really experience the fullness of life with God. But it's also the case that, that, there, that these had some Jewish roots as well, not because they were practices that, that were commanded in the Old Testament, but because first century Judaism had some groups that practiced these sorts of things. But here's the thing. Regardless of the, of the specifics, the point of, the, of these false teachers is that they were saying, in order to really experience the fullness of God, you need to do these other things. It was Jesus plus asceticism, or Jesus plus worship of angels, or Jesus plus these mystical visions. Jesus plus fill in the blank. And part of what Paul's calling them out on is their pride, the pride of these false teachers. What he says here is that they're actually trying to judge and disqualify the Colossian Christians. If you look back, he says this both in verses 16 and 18. He says in verse 16, let no one pass judgment on you. And then verse 18, let no one disqualify you. And here's what I think is so, so helpful about this. One of the ways that, that, that legalism or this, this belief that you need something more than Jesus will show up in a church is in a graceless, merciless, competitive culture that it produces. It, it'll show itself in people passing judgment on one another. It'll show itself in these cliques forming that exclude other people who don't adhere to these same practices, these same preferences that we might have. It's gonna show itself in, in, in that kind of judgment, whether that's based on political views, whether that's based on the decision that you make as to how you're gonna educate your children, whether that, that, that's based on the, the parenting approach that you've chosen to adopt. In all of those ways, the, the common denominator can be this graceless, merciless culture. Now, I'm not saying that the questions on those things aren't important or that we shouldn't talk about them. Those are all fine things. But what I am saying is this, that one of the ways that you know that those kinds of things or any that you would fill in in the blank there have risen to the level of saying that you need them in addition to Jesus is that judgment, cruelty, and exclusion are gonna show up. And that's why Paul is saying, don't let anybody disqualify you. Don't let them exclude you based on any of this stuff. Why not? Well, he goes on to say it's because these false teachers have lost connection with Christ, who is the head. And that, that's the main problem with them. Verse 19, he says these false teachers are not holding fast to the head. And here's the problem with that. He goes on to say this. Christ is actually the one who is the true source of life with God. As head, all life comes from him. And so to start saying or implying that, that, that you need Jesus plus anything else for real life with God is actually to cut yourself off from the source of that real life. And so look again at verse 19. He says, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. Everything you need for growth in the Christian life comes from Jesus. That is Paul's point. It doesn't come from any of these other additional things that we might want to add to it. Here's what's really interesting, though. He goes on uh, with, with this image to go just from talking about Christ as head 
to then this image of the church as his body. And here's what this means. The, the, the place, the context, the, the, the way in which we would hold fast to Christ as our head is right here. It's in the church. It's in the community of believers. And so, so one of the, the implications of this is that you cannot grow as a Christian on your own. There's this one anothering language that's actually part of what, what Paul's saying here, that, that, that we actually need one another in order to hold fast to Christ who is the head. That that's actually part of what it means to be a part of the church, that it's through the church that Jesus gives us his life. It's through one another that he nourishes us and gives us this growth that comes from God alone. So you are free in Christ because Christ is the true substance. You're free in Christ because he is the true source. Thirdly, and finally, you are free in Christ because he is the true sanctifier. I do realize that's a third S. I had to do it, okay? True sanctifier. So in this last paragraph, uh, you, you get a final description of, of what this false teaching is all about. So verse 21, he says this, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. He's quoting whatever these laws were. It's possible that these are some reference to Old Testament cleanliness laws. That seems to make sense. But, but, but the point is that there are these laws, these, these rules that are in place that, that are supposed to keep you from sin and temptation. They involve touching, tasting, um, and, and handling. What's interesting about this is, is uh, Jesus actually says in both Matthew 15 and he says this in Mark 7 as well, that, that what comes into your body is not what defiles a person. It's actually what comes out of your heart that defiles a person. Mark says really specifically, he says, thus he declared all foods clean. So whatever this is, it's, it's, it's in contradiction to what Jesus has said. And so what Paul is going with here is he's saying that whatever this is, there are these human precepts and traditions that are at the end of the day based solely in your, will, your own willpower. And his point is to say, that won't work. And here is why he needs to warn them. Verse 23, he says, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom. They have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism. That's this, uh, these severe practices to the body and, and, and severity to the body. In other words, these strict disciplines, these, these practices that seem really hard on your body, that are th these practices that, that, that are scrupulous in the, in the obedience they require seem like the pathway to real piety. They have the appearance of wisdom, like this would be the way towards true spiritual growth. And so one of the best and really one of the only examples in pop culture of this is from the Da Vinci Code, which is like almost 20 years old now at this point. So not a great illustration. We're going with it though. Um, and there, there's a character in there named Silas. He's this very mysterious figure who's a part of this religious group that believed that the way to real spiritual growth are, are, is through these severe practices of the body. And so he has this, uh, th this ring around his leg that he wears underneath his cloak and as a way to, 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 to sort of purge himself from his sin is to tighten that rope, to tighten that belt. There are times where he flogs himself in order to purge himself from the temptation of sin. And, and I know, like, none of us would do that sort of thing. I do think there's a part of us that goes, okay, that's weird. However, that does seem like it might kind of work. 
specifically when it comes to, to these sins and these temptations that we have in our bodies. And I'm thinking here specifically of things like addiction. I'm thinking of things like sexual sin and temptation and lust that almost feels automatic in your body. And you think, if I could just control my body in some way, then I wouldn't fall prey to this over and over and over again. And so the temptation is to think that if I could just muster up enough willpower, if I could just adhere to these rules of do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, and submit myself to that kind of rigorous discipline, then I might actually stop sinning in these ways that are consuming me right now. What Paul says is that that will never work. It will not work. Verse 23 at the end, he says this, they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. He is saying, those things will not work. Why not? Because in the end, what he says is that that is self-made religion. That is looking to your own willpower. That is looking to some kind of severe disciplinary practice as though that is what is ultimately going to stop the indulgence of the flesh. And it won't work. All it does is enslave you. So then the question is, what will? What will actually stop the indulgence of the flesh? What does bring about real change and real growth? Well, Paul's answer to that is, of course, Jesus. It is Christ alone who has the power to bring about that kind of indulgence to the flesh that you feel enslaved to. It is living in that freedom that you have right now, if you've put your faith in him through his death and resurrection, that you will experience the stopping of this indulgence of the flesh. And this is actually where Paul turns in the next chapter, which is what we're gonna look at the week after Easter, is looking to the risen Lord Jesus and the power to change that we actually have in and through him. So let me close with this. Uh, this is John 8, verse 36. This is what Jesus says. He says that if the Son sets you free, then you will be free indeed. And that is what Jesus offers you. It is true freedom. It is the, 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 the true freedom that you cannot attain or earn on your own. And the moment that you try to add something to it, you become enslaved and captivated again. And so the question then is, how do we continue to live in that freedom? It's by holding fast to the one who has set you free and by refusing to add anything to him. That's what Jesus calls us to. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for this radical freedom that is ours in and through Jesus. Lord, you know the temptation of our hearts to try to add something to that. You know the, the ways in which we feel more comfortable and more in control when it's based on what we do. And yet, Lord, you have called us to something far, far better. And so we pray, Lord, that we would live into this freedom that is ours in Christ. We pray it all in his name for his glory and for our good. Amen.